0: or listen on as I read Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, the food laws of Israel, hear the word of God. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the children of Israel, saying, These things are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. Uh, The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The, uh, The rock... Hyrax, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. But, uh, the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoofs, having cloven hooves, uh, does, uh, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and, uh, their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the water, whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, and the falcon after its kind. Every raven after its kind. The ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind. The little owl, the fisher owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, uh, the, the hoopoe and the bat, All flying incense that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have joint legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. By these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. The carcass of any animal which divides the foot but is not cloven hoofed or does not chew the cut is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean and whatever goes on its paws among All the animals that go on all fours, those are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It is unclean to you. These also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. Any thing on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever item it is or in which any work is done, it must be put in water and it shall be unclean until evening. Then it shall be clean. Any earthen vessels in which any of them falls you shall break, and whatever is in it shall be unclean. In such a vessel, any edible food upon which water falls becomes unclean, and any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean. And everything on which a part of any such carcass falls shall be unclean, whether it is an oven oven or cooking stove, it shall be broken down for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern in which there is plenty of water shall be clean But whatever touches any such carcass becomes unclean, and if a part of any such carcass falls on any planting seed which is to be sown, it remains remains clean. But if water is put on the seed, and if a part of any such carcass falls on it, it becomes unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. He also who carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination and shall not be eaten. "...whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, and whatever has many feet among the creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not make make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth." For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. And now let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of scripture once again. We acknowledge to you that uh, there is much in your word that... Uh, we do not fully understand, certainly we come to the book of Leviticus and we are struck in many ways by the difficulty uh, that is before us. Certainly the preacher feels that as much as any, but uh, this, this word is as worthy to be preached as any other, for here are words that you uttered. And if anything, O oh God, seeing how much of the imagery of ritual clean, uh, cleanliness and purity is seized upon in the New Testament, it tells us, well, there really is something in this for the believer. And help us, O oh God, then to, to lay hold of it for ourselves in just that way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we are dealing with here are the so-called food laws of Israel. I remember, uh, I remember once in Sunday school, Dr. Prather giving an edifying lesson on uh, this portion of Scripture, presenting them as a kind of ancient, health, ancient public health code for, code for that time. Uh, and I'm very thankful to be in possession of that lesson. But what I'm hoping to do here is to try to understand how these food laws fit into this book of Leviticus. How do they fit in at this point and why? Given what we've already read and where where we're going. What is their purpose from the standpoint of the tabernacle, the priesthood and the sacrifices? You remember that uh, the the tabernacle and the priesthood have already been established. The sacrifices have commenced. uh, The priesthood uh, have taken up their work. But here, we're told about the food laws. And the question that I am curious to know, and that I would imagine you are curious to know as well, and I hope that uh, it will be an edifying sermon answering the question is how do they fit in at this point, given all that we've read about the tabernacle and her worship? Why did the food laws come in here? Well, the first thing to observe is the structure of Leviticus itself. We're at a major juncture. In Leviticus, uh, one major juncture has closed, the sacrifice in the priesthood, chapters 1 through 10. Here we're, we're at something more general, dealing with the whole of Israel. Remember the flow of what we've been considering. This is what we must bear in mind. You remember, not only was the priesthood established in chapters 9 and 10... Uh, they were consecrated in chapter 8, but in chapters 9 and 10 they began the work. But significantly in chapter 10, the whole of the priesthood was put in jeopardy by the sins of Nadab and Abihu. And it is this that we must bear in mind at this crucial uh, point in the life of Israel. And as the prelude to the laws of clean, cleanliness and personal purity. It isn't, in other words, put together haphazardly. There is intentionality. There's a reason that the Lord... Said next, after that moment, I want you to talk, uh, Moses, to the people about personal ritual purity. There's a book I've been using, Morales, he's a professor at Greenville Seminary, that's been so helpful to me, especially as I try to understand the general import import of each major section in Leviticus. There are two quotes which I found, which I want to share with you, speaking of the connection with prior section in this new section he says this this is the first quote chapter 10 immediately reminds us that the new access opened up in chapter 9 has also opened a new threat the cultic bridge of communication between the sacred and the profane also entails the possibility of muddling the division before them so the access is open. But, but that access, that new, newfound access, was also a newfound threat. This is what we also find in the New Testament. Uh, there are many occasions where uh, believers are struck by the grace of Jesus Christ, the fullness of grace, but they are reminded again and again throughout the New Testament that the grace with which they are dealing, and especially the person of grace, the Lord himself, is still a fearful being. And so the danger is that of presumption, presuming upon God's grace. That was the danger which Nadab and Abihu exhibited. That's the danger that Ananias and Sapphira exhibited in Acts chapter 5 in the early church. Let us realize that the God of all grace is a God who is holy and he must be reverenced by his people remember what Moses said to Aaron by those who come near I must be regarded as holy and before all the people I must be glorified that's the sort of thing that stands even today and that's what we must bear in mind as we go on to the general rules not of the priesthood that's more particular but as the general laws and the rules of the people who now have to deal with a God whom they were taught to fear. Grace misunderstood places us in jeopardy of judgment. And what were they to do? The second quote is this from Morales. He said, once Nadab and Abai whose fault reveals the dreadful possibility that defiling Yahweh's dwelling may lead to death, it's naturally an urgent matter to specify those impurities that pollute the sanctuary. And naturally, the chief among these is sin itself, strange fire. Well, the people would want to know what what is it you are commanding us to do? What is it you're commanding us not to do? We don't want the same fate to befall us. You see, it's natural that the Lord would address the people now. Doing what God has commanded, especially with regard to worship. In other words, if they would enter into his courts, they must do so in this way. If we consider the law of the priesthood, here's the law of the people. And so the purity laws show us that God... God has a concern for the people, not just the priests. His commands go well beyond the priesthood to the people. And what we find in these purity laws, I know they seem strange. I even had difficulty at times reading it. It isn't the kind of thing, uh, that we're, we're all that familiar with and, uh, it isn't the kind of thing, let's be honest, that we talk about all that much. But the, the key idea here is, is plainly obvious and that, that is that God is placing Distinctions and borders and boundaries all around and through the life of Israel. They they would constantly in their comings and goings be confronted with the purity laws, whether they were in their bedrooms and a spider was crawling across the wall or when they were sitting down for a meal and the very food they were eating uh, or as they walked through the field and saw a bird in the air or a beast of the field or walked by a river and saw the various fishes. Of of the sea or the river constantly confronted by uh, this structured ritual holiness that God was impressing upon them. And, and the overall sense was uh, that, that of the need for holiness and that holiness is something that comes from the Lord. It's something that he defines. About this holiness, we could ask the question, was it in many cases put on like the priest's garments? In other words, something that wasn't inherent, but was to some extent artificial and thus symbolic. An artificial, symbolic kind of holiness. Is that the kind of holiness that God was calling his people to? Yes, it was. It was so for the priests in the the garments that they wore. It was for the people in the distinctions they were observing every day in their interactions with all the animals of the earth. And the reason for this is that the Old Covenant was an age of types and shadows. And so don't, when you read Leviticus chapter 11, mistake the food laws for the real thing, as the New Covenant later makes clear. Jesus declares all foods clean. That was a scandal to the Jews, but he was bringing the true meaning out. For the most part, I won't say entirely, but for the most part, these food laws deal with that which is morally indifferent. There's nothing inherently sinful About eating, uh, let's say, pork. But in the moral indifference of what God was calling the people to, two things appear. One is God's sovereignty as the lawgiver. That if he should forbid our use of that which is not in itself sinful, that is enough for us. Like Adam before, you think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing inherently sinful about that. And yet God says, don't eat it. Like like Adam, in that case, the moral indifference of the thing itself becomes a test of true obedience since the only restraint against the thing is not a moral aversion from its obvious sinfulness, but simply the command of God, which is fitting in a way just following this prior incident that God should make his commands so clear to the people and even test them in that regard with the sin and the downfall of Nadab and Abihu still fresh in their minds. Again, the question is, would the people do what the Lord commands? That was always the question before them. And so often the answer was no. The second reason uh, that the moral indifference is important is because something which is morally indifferent uh, fits in in the age of signs and types and spiritual realities. If the sinfulness appeared too much in the thing itself, then the temptation would be to focus upon the thing which God prohibited. The external. In other words, to think of the pig and not think about the pollution of sin. And that's not what the Lord wanted here. He wanted them to focus on the spiritual always. And since many of these things had nothing evil in them. The Israelites were forced to contemplate in their observance of these ceremonial laws, the deeper spiritual truths that God was impressing upon them through these many distinctions. That was the spiritual discernment which the spiritually minded Israel would be able to exercise. All of these things, the prohibited things, served in essence as daily reminders of the pollution of sin. That the pollution of sin is something that's pervasive. It's something you can't get away from. In fact, that's why the Lord says, now when you do get polluted, I want you to be cleansed in this way. You never really could get away from it. It was always there. It was always clinging to you. It always find its way to you. You could never get away from it. So that the spiritually minded Israel couldn't hardly let 15 minutes pass without being reminded of this in some form. His need for purity. His need for cleansing. The fact that the earth was under the wrath and condemnation of God. So this was a help to the Israelite. Reminding him of his need for holiness. And this becomes clear in turn. That this is the requirement of God. Not just the requirement of holiness. But a requirement of ritual holiness. Not just the priest. But As I've been indicating, God turns to the people now and says, here is the holiness. I want you to put on this holiness. You see how clearly he states this at the end, and this is really the key. Lest you be defiled, he says, verse 43, 44, for I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore be, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves, for I am the Lord who brings you up. Out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy. For I am holy. And then he says. He gives these laws. Verse 46, 47. In order to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. And this isn't the first time the Lord said this to Israel. You remember what he says in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. It's one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. He says that he would have for Israel Israel. Uh, his will for Israel was that they might be a nation and a kingdom of priests. Not just the priests, you see, but the people would become priests in a sense. That there would be in this nation a ritual, or excuse me, a pervasive ritual holiness that would mark them out as a nation. Again, that was the goal which the Lord was setting before them. Now he was setting out the path to to realize that goal. The question then becomes, what does this holiness consist of? This priestly ritual holiness. As Andrew Bonar asked in his, uh, at the end of his commentary on this section. What is holiness? Well let me say this first of all. That above all God would be regarded as the Holy One of Israel. Any consideration of the subject of personal holiness. Must always begin with the consideration of God himself. Who is the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy One of the people of God. And he would have His holiness. Or rather, excuse me, he would have his glory to appear to us in his holiness. By those who come near to me, again, Moses to Aaron, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. This is how God would be known. And how does his holiness appear to us? Well, in that he is essentially different. That he is altogether greater than we and separate from sinners, which is also not incidentally The greatest obstacle to the sinner's approach into his presence and worship. The holiness of God. His absolute moral perfection. His aversion to all that is sinful and unclean. But do you see God is saying that my holiness is the great reason for yours. Not only would I be regarded as holy by my people, but I would have them to be holy as well. To share in my holiness as Peter says. I would have a people who are like me, who are holy, who are clean, who share my aversion for sin and that which is unclean. A people who thus have a place in my presence, counted among those whom he delights to dwell, true worshipers. Beyond that, you see, he says... I have redeemed you. Not only am I the Lord and the Holy One of Israel, but I am your redeemer, God says, the one who brought you out of the house of Israel, or of of Egypt, I mean. He is the Lord, the Savior of his people. Now, you ask yourself this at this point, his grace, his redemption. Does that make us like Nadab and Abihu, forgetful of his holiness, that he has saved us? Or does it remind us of why he has redeemed us in the first place and what that redemption is like? I've redeemed you out of the house of Egypt, God says. Well, what is he saying there? What does he mean? He means this. I've taken you out of the place that is unclean. I've taken you out of that which is polluted and I have set you in a place which is clean. I have cleansed you. I have redeemed you. I have removed you from the kingdom of darkness to be my own peculiar possession. I've thereby already made you holy. I've set you apart by delivering you. I am your God and does not my holiness thereby appear in my gracious deliverance of you out of the ways of sin and evil? And do you not see in this the greatest possible motive for personal holiness, not presumption? As with native and Abihu, but personal holiness, the redemption, the grace of God. Not only that he is holy, but that in his holiness, he has saved us, that we may partake of it ourselves, that we may be holy as he is holy. And if we would be holy, then God says we must keep his laws. You see, holiness is not just a feeling. I was beginning to say this in Sunday school. It's not just a generic spirit that we work up in ourselves. I'm really not interested in your ideas of holiness and neither is God. Holiness is this, by the way. Here's the answer to the question. Bonar asked the question, what is holiness? And he gives this answer. It's the answer that God gives here. It's keeping his commandments. That is holiness. Keeping even the least of the commandments. Isn't it, isn't it interesting and, and almost amusing for God to say, I don't want you to touch these creeping things. Stay away from them. Lest you be defiled, for I am the Lord your God. It's, it's almost seemingly in, in, in the most insignificant portion of the food laws. At the very end that God reminds them of the grand motive of it all. But you see, he's saying that my holiness appears even in the least of my commandments. And the things that are the least of your concerns. And your carefulness in keeping those. Well, that will become the test of whether you really know me. And whether you wish to be anything like me. Is there a pervasive all-encompassing uh, sense in your heart that I would be holy as he is holy, that I would keep the laws of God even the least. In fact, God, I am concerned even to keep those laws which I don't understand. Why do you require this of me? What is it you're after? I don't know. But I will keep it because I love you and I recognize that in your law I might behold your holiness and I might even find it in myself. Is it any trouble for us to do so? Is it really so hard to do what God asks? Do we really quarrel with him over this or that law? Lord, I don't understand it. Or Lord, well, I'm not sure about that law. I'm not sure I want to keep it. Do you realize what you're really saying is, Lord, I'm not interested in your holiness. Now, I'm not suggesting we're meant to keep these laws. The New Testament is explicit that we are not. The food laws are abrogated. I say that on the authority of Jesus Christ himself. They were meant only for Israel in her present state. When the Redeemer comes, Jesus, they pass away. But I am saying that the principle is the same and the requirement is the same. And that is why you find Peter and others saying the very thing that is found here in the New Testament. And that is, I uh, I am holy and I require that you be holy as well. You shall be holy for I am holy. That is quoted several times in the New Testament. That's the great point. That's the great principle. And again, the question becomes for the New Covenant believer as well as the old. How am I to be holy? What is holy? Holiness. And if you read Peter, if you keep reading after he says that in chapter 1, he tells us. Again, he doesn't just leave this generic sense of holiness for us to figure out. But he tells us exactly what the holiness of God looks like in the life of the people of God, and it, it more or less, it's always the same. It's something like this: you are to keep God's laws. You are to turn away from the ways of sin and the ways of the world, and you are to walk in the ways of God. You are to live a uh, live a life of obedience to God, pervasively in all that you do, even the least of the commandments. That is holiness. It is always adhering to God's laws. And when we do not, when we deviate and fall into sin, to come back to Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness for like the Jews of old, we find that try as we might, we're always being polluted. We're always being defiled. We never quite can be holy, as holy as God is holy, or at least as holy as he's calling us to be. Still sin clings to us. Still we contract its defilement in this way or that. But in our desire for holiness, not only do we seek to keep God's laws, but when we fall, we come to him for washing. We come to him for cleansing that we might be clean once more. And then having been cleansed, what do we do? Well, we begin once again to walk on this path of obedience, not to continue in the ways of sin, but to continue in the ways of obedience as is chosen in royal priesthood in this world. You'll find Peter saying such things in first Peter one and two. But surely we must have here some conception of what it all means. The food laws, the ceremonial laws, they'll take us uh, from chapters 11 through 15, by the way. Uh, and if everything goes according to plan, there will only be two more sermons, but we'll see about that. And then the great uh, day of atonement chapter 16. Well, uh, there are certain key distinctions we must try to appreciate before we ever come to the food laws or these other things. The first of these is the holy and the common. That's the first distinction. That's the great distinction. That which is sanctified to the Lord, that which is common. But there is a further division within that which is common and that which is not holy. And that which is common may either be clean or unclean. It's a basic way to look at this. The priest and all that was in the tabernacle were holy, whereas the people of Israel were clean and the nations were unclean. So you have holy, clean, and unclean. That's how it breaks down. But take it all a step further and realize that each of these were capable of moving in either direction. It was more like a continuum and a spectrum that you might move within. And so that which was common could be made clean. And that's what happened to Israel. God took them out of the common lump of humanity and made them clean by setting them apart as a peculiar nation. But even beyond that, through a special process, which we read about in the priestly ordination and consecration, he, uh, he took some from among those who were made clean and made them holy, namely the priests. And to take this a step further, we could put it in verbal form. That is using a verb to describe each step in the process. In order to make that which is unclean clean, it must be cleansed and then to make that which is clean holy it must be sanctified conversely in either case a degra- degradation that is a falling down in the spectrum may occur by something being profaned or polluted so that the holy and the clean may become unclean through its contact with that which is unclean although the process could also be reversed through a process of washing and cleansing i hope the picture is becoming clearer In every every single case, one was either working within this continuum, working his way either closer to God, who dwells in an approachable holiness, or further away. The nations, the Gentiles, were furthest from God, whereas the high priest was the closest. He was the most holy. He was sanctified. He was able to approach God in the most holy place, the inner room. But again, all of this was capable of fluctuation. And the purity laws for Israel ensured at the very least that the common Israelite might be considered clean, if not holy, and dwell in the courts of the Lord. You remember what the sons of Korah said. That's what they wanted more than anything. I want to dwell in the courts of the Lord. And how would he ever get there? Well, more than just the pilgrimage, the journey there to get there. But through his observance of these laws, God is saying, this is how you'll find a place. And it's a place that I'll honor. I won't strike you down like Nadeb and Abihu. I will honor your place there and you will meet me there. That is what was always at stake. Never lose sight of that. Uh, as I've been saying, this is the directory of public worship for Israel. God is saying to the people, enter into my courts and do so in this way. Always remember that I am holy and that I would be regarded as holy by my people. But concerning the food laws specifically, which you note... I'm not concerned to look at it in any detail. I'm not taking them one by one and extracting spiritual truths, although that could be done. I'm only looking at their general significance, and we find their true significance in that passage we already read, Leviticus 20, verses 20 through 23. Let me just read a few of those verses at the end. Uh, Not all of them, but where he says... I've separated you from the peoples, verse 24, you shall therefore distinguish between clean and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. You shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or any living thing that creeps on the ground, which I've separated from you is unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord your God and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This was an instance of God making Israel clean, se- separating them, as I said, from the common lump Of humanity. I'm using that word common intentionally. And that common lump was unclean. But he made Israel clean. And that was a cleanliness. That she must maintain. Either by avoiding that which was unclean. Or by by, uh, through a process of washing. Or, Or sometimes a process of waiting. Wait until the evening God says. And so God was distinguishing Israel from the nations. That's the big point. Leviticus 20. That's what it tells us. And, and, and God separated them from the nations in this way, simply in what they ate. In what they ate, they separated themselves from the idolatry of the nations. Likewise, the idolatry of the nations appeared in what they ate. Uh, you think, for instance, of the New Testament. Uh, this ought to come to mind almost immediately. Food sacrificed the idols. Well, they sacrificed them, then they ate them. You see, you can't really get away from, from these things. Even in something as simple as a meal. Just by what they ate. They separated themselves from the idolatry of the nations. Their diet was different. This was ritual purity. This was holiness. Not only was their diet different. But their reason for eating was fundamentally different. Than that of the nations. You see even in what you eat. You cannot do it in the spirit of spiritual indifference. You are either eating and drinking to the glory of God with thanksgiving, or you are not. And God was reminding of them that, even as they sat for their many meals each day, of the need for purity, of the need for holiness, of the need to eat and drink unto the glory of God. In whatever you do, and so you're either eating and drinking to God's glory, or you are not. That's what God was teaching them. You're always serving something. You may be serving yourself. Or giving expression to certain forms of idolatry. Or you are serving God himself. There's really no way to get beyond this. Everything we do reveals our fundamental commitments. Let me offer one final quote from Morales. He says, every meal served as a reminder of God's election of Israel out of the nations. But also of Israel's call to keep themselves separate from the uncleanness of those nations. To be a holy people. Not only had God made them clean, but they were to... They were to keep themselves clean. But as a final point, what is our attitude to be about all these things? The food laws in particular. Well, what we see, you can turn to Mark chapter 7 in your, in your own time and see what Jesus thought of the food laws and, and see what a scandal it was to the Jew. The way, the, the way I would describe, or at least the Pharisaistic Jew, not the spiritually minded one, uh, the way I would describe Jesus' attitude about the food laws was indifference. And this is why it was such a scandal to them. The truth is Jesus wasn't concerned about them. Which again the Jews found so highly offensive. And Jesus gives explicit teaching that it isn't what you eat that makes you unclean or that defiles you. But it's the defilement of the inner man. And that appears in what comes out of his heart. The thing that's unclean and needs to be cleaned is the heart of man. Mark chapter 7. But in... Making these declarations and in in, in essence setting aside the food laws, uh, what Jesus was making clear was that the reality of the new covenant had come. And that now as an essential characteristic of the new covenant, true holiness would not be something that is put on, whether priestly garments or artificial distinctions in foods that you eat, but that it would always be that which is inward wrought by the work of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And thus our regeneration by the Holy Spirit in Scripture is likened to washing and clean, uh, cleaning, being made clean. You've been washed, you've been made clean, First Corinthians chapter 6, John chapter 13, Titus chapter 3. And henceforth that would become the priority of the new covenant, not what you eat, but what you are. But of even greater glory than that was what he uh, than what he does for the individual is what he does for the church, and that comes in here as well. You remember he was separating the nations into Jew and Gentile. But what we find going beyond the Gospels now into Acts chapter ten, and you have to go a ways into uh, the life of the church to find this. God began with the Jews, but as he promised, he would work his way out. What he does, you read Acts ten, you read uh, Ephesians chapter two. He breaks down the wall, the barrier. And he makes a new man that is a corporate man, one church in Christ. And how does he do so? He makes both clean, Jew and Gentile alike, under the name of Christ. And thus, by making both clean, he establishes true fellowship. That is what the church is. And that is how Jesus established the church. And it is in this sense, in this sense only, That we are to understand the true force of the phrase there's no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. In other words, the law of God no longer makes a distinction as it once did. The ceremonial law is done away with. It has been fulfilled and something better altogether has come. But don't think that God is no longer interested in cleanness or moral purity or ritual purity. This is something that he does in the individual and it's something that he does in the church. But realize this, therefore, the requirements for holiness are not set aside, not for a moment, not for the individual, not for the church. The holy nation, the royal priesthood is now the Israel of God is now the church. And in making us clean, he is calling us to continue to walk in the ways of sanctification and holiness. And though these things take a different form, they are not thereby weakened, but strengthened, greatly strengthened. The need for holiness Is stronger than it ever was. The requirements. But also the resources. The possibility of holiness is not. Well it's not so far off. As it seemed it always was for Israel. Now it is near to you. Even in your very hearts. And within the realm of the church. And so let us hear what God says. At the end of the chapter. And hear him speaking to us. As individuals. And as a church. Leviticus chapter 11. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves for I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. There is the message of God to his church in every age, but especially in ours. Amen. And let us stand together and sing praise to our God. Trinity hymnal, the blue Trinity hymnal. Hymn 677, and please stand.